Beloved, today, like never before in history, we have so many voices trying to and able to speak to us. Like never before, we have so many authorities trying to silence us. And we ask the question, to what voice or voices ought we to listen? What authorities should we heed? I was blessed this week. David shared a video called A Cheerful Giver. It's a video about 25 minutes long that was put together by Grace Community Church, Grace to You, the Master's Academy International. And it was in celebration of thankfulness to the Believers Foundation, which is a patron organization that has partnered with Masters Academy International over many years, uh, 20, going on 25 or so years, to basically take the Word of God to help train national pastors and for the faithful exposition of the Word of God by qualified trained men in countries around the world. It was a great blessing. It was one because we are blessed as a church to partner with the Masters Academy International. Uh, Rob Provost has a fair amount of time in the video. Uh, we see Christian Andreessen. So it was a joy and a blessing for me and even for us as a church to consider it. And one of the aspects at the end of the 25-minute video, uh, John MacArthur says, please open your Bibles. And then they have a list of a various and sundry qualified and trained men in various and sundry countries in various and sundry languages say please open your bibles beloved as i consider that i am a servant of god's word i have no other place i have no other prerogative i have no other purpose i have no other privilege please open your bibles to hebrews hebrews chapter 2 Beloved, in Hebrews chapter 1, we know that God speaks to us through Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, God saves us through Christ. Our focus is on Christ, and our focus is on our freedom in Christ. As redeemed, cleansed, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Beloved, listen as I read the Word of God. Our passage this morning are verses 5 through 10 in Hebrews chapter 2, but I'm going to read through verse 13. This is the Word of God, Hebrews 2, and verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one is testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, 
I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Beloved, this is the word of the living God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, in this magnificent passage that God has for us here this morning, what we see in verses 5 through 8 is the dignity and glory of man, collective. And then it's followed by the dignity and glory of the man, Christ. And the intent, the purpose of the original author to the Hellenistic Jewish believers to whom the author of Hebrews wrote, and God's purpose for you and me was that we would better understand our place, our privilege, our purpose, and even our power in the economy of God. And as we come to verse 5, we know, of course, it comes after verse 4. And if you were here last week, you may remember that the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2 is a brief interlude. It's a parenthetical expression in this large section from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18. The author of Hebrews is giving a strong correction, giving strong guidance and teaching around the subject of angels. There was problem and error and confusion in the society, in the religious world that was beginning to impact even this group of Jewish believers that the author felt compelled to give a, the first of what is a number of great warnings in the book of Hebrew in the first four verses. So again, those first four verses is this kind of brief interlude. So when we come to verse 5, what the author is doing is he's picking up the theme of the great contrast between the Son, between the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, and angels, and his vast superiority, his infinite superiority over the angels. And it ties back all the way to verse 14 of chapter 1, where he, we left it saying he was sent to render service. The angels are sent out to render service for the sake of those, meaning us, who will inherit salvation. So that little word for at the beginning of verse 5, of course, comes from the end of verse 4, but it ties back to the main topic. And what he is doing here is he begins to pick up this theme through verse 8 of the dignity and the glory of man collective. Now, what do I mean by that? That's you, that's me, that's us. That is humanity, all of humanity in general, and the saved, believing, trusting Jesus Christ by faith alone believers that are his children in particular. And what he brings out here is our dignity, our glory, our rule, and even our destiny. It is revealed by God, and as we know from human experience, as we know from Scripture, and as we even know from what the author will say here, is our dignity and glory is restricted by sin. It's polluted by sin. It's impacted by sin. And he says, for there, verse 5, he did not subject to angels the world to come. Now, he did not subject. This word subject, he did not place under. It's an important word. It appears once here in verse 5. It appears four times in verse 8. And he says to angels, and to make sure we know what angels we're talking about, he's talking about the holy angels. He's not talking about demons. He's talking about the holy angels, the elect angels. And what we know from Chapter 1, what we know from all of Scripture is clearly Jesus is superior to angels. 
And do we know, do you know, do you understand that you are superior to angels? In the economy of God, in the plan of God, in the purpose of God, as put in place in the Garden of Eden, as articulated by God in Genesis and in Psalm 8 and in Hebrews 2, you are superior to angels. And what he says here hang on for that, is the world to come. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. This idea of the world to come, what's in the future, pervades the book of Hebrews. We have here the world to come. We have the age to come in chapter 6, verse 5, and there's a city to come in chapter 13, verse 14. So, When we consider the topic that you and I are superior to angels, that might sound kind of strange. I mean, angels are mighty. They are powerful. Clearly, in this present world, angels are clearly superior to man. But the point here is in the world to come, man, believing man, believing men and women are and will be superior to angels. For example, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, the immature church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, do you not know that we shall judge angels? And what Paul there was talking about is the world to come, and that's specifically what the author here is talking about. He's talking about the world of reality, which will replace this world of shadows. This is a world of reality that for the new creature, the adopted son and daughter in Christ, it has already been inaugurated by Christ, but it is not yet present in its fullness. So ask the question, would you rather be an angel or would you rather be a man? Well, what sounds better? Would you rather have 6,000 years of superiority or would you rather have an eternity of superiority? And even if you're not blessed to be an engineer, I think you can figure that out. We'll take the eternity of superiority. Sorry for the <laughs> self-promoting thing. Well, we'll take the eternity of superiority, not 6,000 years, as long as that is of superiority. Well, where does the author, pastor, preacher of Hebrews get this idea? Is this something that he sucked out of his thumb? Is this an undigested potato that was disturbing him in the morning? Well, look at what it says as he continues verse 6. He says, but one is testified somewhere saying. Literally, he says, somewhere someone has testified. This is a common rhetorical device that they would use back then. I don't think this brilliant author of Hebrews forgot what his source was. But this was something that was commonly used. Philo, the philosopher, for example, uses kind of vague rhetorical device to be an opening some kind of statement or quotation to drive home the importance of what's coming. Beloved, the point here is this. We know that the author of Hebrews didn't identify himself. So, To the author of Hebrews, the human author, David, of Psalm 8, which is what he's going to quote here in a second, is incidental. God is the focus. God is the purpose. To the author of Hebrews, the Bible is a divine oracle. It is the voice of God. And so he focuses on the God who speaks. And in fact, he'll do this again in chapter 4, verse 4, where he will write in a few chapters, or two chapters, I should say, He has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
Now, again, I don't think the author forgot that that was said back in Genesis chapter 1. Again, it's a device that he uses because his intent, his purpose is pointing the children of God to the word of God coming from the God of the universe. Now, as we continue in our text, what is this thing that someone somewhere said? What does he say? And specifically, in verse 6, he continues, what is man that you remember him? And this is the beginning of a quotation from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. We read Psalm 8 in our public reading of Scripture before. And as we think of Psalm 8, it of course comes after Psalm chapter 7. And I came across a great quote this week that kind of helps set the stage for us as we consider Psalm 8, and more importantly to the point here of the author of Hebrews' quotation of it. This is what the quote said of leading into Psalm 8 after Psalm in particular 3 through 7. The author says, Having weaved our way in five consecutive psalms, 3 through 7, through the dark valleys of lament and pleas for deliverance, we hear the strains of a joyful melody rising from just beyond the steep hill. And we arrive at the crest to discover a welcome prospect of breathtaking beauty and awesome delight as we come into Psalm 8. Psalm 8, the author concludes, introduces us to the first experience of joyful praise and adoration in the Psalms. And beloved, if you read Psalm 8, you'll see that it is a joyful meditation and praise on God as the creator God out of the Genesis record of creation. Now, Psalm 8, when it was given to the original nation of Israel by David, uh, was not considered a messianic psalm. The context of Psalm 8 to the original audience wasn't about the coming Messiah. It was about man, about humanity in general, man collective, about Adam, the first Adam, and about David. It wasn't until Jesus, in Matthew 21, quotes Psalm 8 and applies it to himself, or Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, I think, verse 27, also applies it to Jesus. And then now the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. So we want to understand what the original audience, how they understood it. And basically what they're saying is you read through what David was writing was he moves from the transcendence of God to the significance of man to the insignificance of man and then back out the significance of man and then the transcendence of God again. And the focus, the intent is on God, on God's glory. And the point is, what is man? When we consider God as the awesome creator God, when we consider the vastness of the universe, the stars and the animals, what is man? Who am I that the creator, sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe would remember me, would be mindful of me, would be concerned about me? It's similar language that, for example, in Psalm 144, verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Or Job, in Job 7, verse 17, what is man that you magnify him and that you're concerned about him? So, beloved, the point is man is insignificant, and even if you look at Psalm 8, he opens up, he has kind of bookends. At the beginning of verse 1 and at the end of verse 9, you see the words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. So the point here is this. 
the intent of Psalm 8 was to bring out man's dignity, man's rule, and even man's glory. But all of those must be understood in the context of God's glory. So what is man that you would remember him or the son of man that you would be concerned with him? Now, it's interesting, even in the original Hebrew of Psalm 8, while the intent was on man collective, not the coming future messianic man, the man Jesus Christ, the David uses two different words for man in verse 4. At the beginning, he says, what is man that you would remember him? It's the word Enosh. And then he says, or the son of man, the son of Adam. So two different words. And it's interesting because the first word, Enosh, brings out man as weak and vulnerable. It's used more often for just ordinary man. Whereas the second man that is used there, the son of Adam, that brings out more of the imagery and the visualization of man as the centerpiece of God's creation. Male and female, God made them in his own image. So kind of in the same way, for example, Isaiah 7 verse 14, Isaiah made this prophecy that a virgin will be with a child. And we know historically that Matthew applies that to Jesus, that Jesus was born of a true virgin. And The Hebrew word that they use there for virgin in Isaiah can mean either a maiden or a virgin. And so when Isaiah wrote that, he was talking about a woman that was a maiden that would give child. But he used this Hebrew word that could kind of go either way. The Greek word for virgin in Matthew means specifically virgin. So the point I'm getting at here is in the brilliance of God in the planning, even when David wrote Psalm 8 some thousand years or so before the New Testament, he even put in there this future application where Jesus, Paul, and the author of Hebrews would take this great passage about the dignity and glory of man and then be able to take that forward and apply it to the dignity and glory of the man, Jesus Christ. In the context here, though, of uh, uh, that God would devote, that Jesus would devote his sacred head to a worm such as I, even as we sang before. The point in Psalm 8, in the insignificance of man, is we are like creatures, groping in the darkness for light. That our dignity and our rule is destroyed by our sin. And so, who are we back here in Hebrews 2.6, that you're concerned about him, about man. And the word concern there, it means, it means literally a supervisor. It's, it's a super intense word describing one who knows all the details and is in control of something. But the way in which this word is used in the New Testament talks about someone who looks after the sick, someone who goes to help someone, someone who is concerned and cares about someone. For example, this word translated concern about is used in Matthew 25, verse 36, where Christ says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And he basically saying when, they, when he was answering the questions that they asked him, when did we do these things to you, Lord? And he's saying, look, when you visited the naked and clothed them, when you visit the sick and care for them, I was in prison and you came to me. The loving, tender care that they give to the oppressed was how they were approaching Christ. But it's the same word, you visited me, is caring about. Beloved, all this to say, the whole point of David in Psalm 8 and the author of Hebrews here is the loving, caring, shepherding, 
tender care of the sovereign, holy creator, God of the universe, of even frail, insignificant man. Um, The same word is used in Zacharias' song. After Zacharias' son, John, was born, and God loosened his tongue, and he erupted in this beautiful song of praise and thanksgiving, glorifying God, he brackets, he gives this kind of bookend of extolling God's care and concern. In Luke 1, 68, he says, the Lord God of Israel has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 78, the sunrise from on high will visit us. So he has visited us, he has cared for us, he is concerned about us, and he will visit us, have care for us, and be concerned for us. That is the point that is coming out about God. So the author's main point as we now go to verse 7 is Man is now. You and I now are lower than angels. But this is not a permanent condition. That's why in verse 7, here in Hebrews 2, he writes, You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of your hands. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've placed a wreath around his head. You've rewarded him as a victor in a great battle or as the champion of an athletic endeavor. And verse 8, you put all things in subjection under his feet. It's interesting, uh, David used that in the past tense, and the author does hear it as well. So when did God put all things in subjection under the feet of man. He did that in the Garden of Eden. He did that at creation. Genesis 1, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image. The triune Godhead said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Watch this. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the Garden of Eden, God clearly placed all of the created universe, the material universe, the physical universe in subjection to man. But even back then, but especially the way that the author of Hebrews brings here is, it's not just the physical material world, it is the spiritual world as well, even back in the original intent from Genesis. Here in verse 8 of Hebrews 2, the author says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. So that would even include the angels. That's the immediate reference here. So the author is telling us, reminding us that all the way back at creation, that was the original intent, that was the original purpose of God for man in our dignity and our glory. He's describing comprehensive and total rule of all of God's creation, both physical and spiritual, as God's vice regents, as God's original intent. But the problem is, and we know this from human experience, we know this from Scripture, the problem is what we see now doesn't line up with that. That's why the author says, still in verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And by the way, verse 8 here is again where we see that word subjected to four times. That's the main point here. And what the author is saying is, look, when we look at the world, as it is now, it doesn't look like it's under control. 
It doesn't look like it any, has any kind of semblance of a righteous rule. We still have earthquakes. We still have tornadoes. We have volcanoes. We have venomous spiders. We have homicides. We have cancer. When we look at man, male and female now, we don't look like victors. We look much more like victims. That's the problem. That sets the stage. The dignity and glory of man collective is marred by sin. But that's where the dignity and glory of the man, Christ, comes in. As we go to verse 9. Who, we could ask, take the place? Who could take the place of the first Adam? It would have to be one who is capable of undoing the effects of Adam's fall and ushering in a new world order. Beloved, our dignity, which was destroyed by sin, is restored by the man Christ. That is the point he's bringing out here. That's why he says in verse 9, but... We do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, depending on your translation, you might see a difference in capitalization. So in my New American Standard, in verses 5 through 8, when you see man being referenced as him, my New American Standard has that as a lowercase him. In my NASB, verse 9, the word him there is capitalized. Now, As good students of the word, we will remember that in the original languages, there was no capitalization, there was no punctuation, there were no verses or chapter divisions. These are things that were added as helps by the translators. And I think here, the New American Standard translators got it right, because this is a massive shift going from man collective to the man Christ. And this is the first mention of Jesus by his human name, namely Jesus, Yahweh saves. The point the author is bringing here is he became the creator, the ruler, the sustainer and upholder of all things that we saw back in chapter 1. He became a genuine man in this fallen world. Also, another beautiful element we see here in verses 8 and 9 is in the book of Hebrews there's a wonderful mixture of seeing what we see now what we already see and what we are not yet seeing back in verse 8 we are not seeing the world to come but here in verse 9 we are seeing this man Jesus this already not yet this inaugurated aspect of the kingdom of God, which is not yet fully consummated, but is part of the world that is yet to come. Again, back in chapter 1, he's the creator, the upholder, the ruler, the purifier of God's people. He rules, cares, and gives with absolute total authority and superiority. Let it be known to all Jehovah Witnesses that Jesus Christ is not an angel. Let it be known to all Muslims that he is not merely a prophet. He is, to be sure, the prophet who speaks finally. He is the priest who saves victoriously. And he is the king who rules and reigns triumphantly. And what we are bringing out here in the humanity, he is also our brother. We won't get that till we get to verse 11, but he is setting the stage here in verses 9 and 10. The prophet, priest, king, ruler, upholder is your brother and my brother in his humanity. And as such, he has sympathy, sympathy with us sinners, but without being tainted. 
He came not only to share your humanity, but to transform your humanity so that you can fulfill God's original intent and purpose from the Garden of Eden and captured even by David in Psalm 8. He came to share the humanity and to transform it. The carpenter who was the creator became the cross bearer, the man of sorrows. Now, he is described here, again, as lower than angels. In his humanity, Jesus got tired. He had to sleep. He had to rest. He had to refuel. He had to eat and to drink. Angels don't sleep. Angels don't need to refuel. Angels don't die. Jesus died. And so someone might ask to the Jewish people at the time, the idea of a suffering Messiah, the idea of a Messiah that dies a torturous, horrible, shameful death as he did was absolutely abhorrent. So how can this be part of God's plan? But what we see here, beloved, is as man, as the man, as your representative man, Jesus fills the purpose of God and our human destiny, your human destiny. destiny. And when he says for a little while, lower than the angels for a little while, that was the incarnation from birth to crucifixion. When he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, he is no longer lower than angels. And why? Why would this be part of God's plan? Why is this right? Why, why did God do this thing? He gives us the answer. He says, because of the suffering of death. We know from human experience and even from applying biblical principles to intentionally suffer for no reason is foolishness, but to suffer for a noble cause is heroic. And suffering is a dominant theme in the book of Hebrews. And what we have here is it was because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. So first comes the cross, then comes the crown. We, he moves from the past pathos to the present place seated at the right hand of God the Father. He moves from the lowest humiliation, the second member of the Trinity, came down to earth and suffered a horrible death, the lowest humiliation. He moves from that to the highest exaltation. Beloved, now, Lord Jesus, the man Christ, is clothed, forever clothed in glory and honor as part of his resurrection, ascension, and coronation as king, reigning at the right hand of the Father. You see, <clears throat> glory is secured through suffering in the economy of God. That's why you'll read in Luke 24, verse 26, it says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory again, glory is secured by suffering. But the author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. Continue looking, verse 9, he says that, so that purpose statement, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death for all, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, young and old, he tasted death for. And by the way, when it says he tasted death, that's not like, uh, you know, your, your child has a good plate of food. and You say, oh, can I have a taste of that? The way the author is using taste here, it's the full experience. It's the full consumption. He tasted death 
in all of its elements that you and I would experience it. And in some cases, from a spiritual standpoint, even far more torturous physically and even spiritually as the man Jesus suffered the wrath of separation of God when he died there on the cross. And it's interesting, the original Greek sentence ends emphatically with that word death. Because God wants you and I to understand and know that it was in his death that the man Christ fully satisfied God's demands of infinite holiness and justice. He drained the bitter cup to its last bitter dregs in your place on my behalf. And beloved, while suffering Messiah might seem like foolishness to some and a scandal to others, we should understand that the cross is the masterpiece of omniscience. It's where God's infinite justice and mercy, God's infinite justice and God's infinite mercy are perfectly harmonized and brought together for his glory and for our eternal joy. And this work that Christ did is far, infinitely far above the powers of mere angels. Yet, to effect this end, to accomplish this purpose, He had to become lower than the angels for a little while. The first Adam, beloved, took humanity into sin and death. The second Adam tasted death to rescue humanity out of sin and eternal death. There's no, beloved, dear friend, there is no sovereign Savior without a suffering servant. There is no resurrection power without crucifixion pain. And this is right. This is fitting. This is appropriate. His suffering was voluntary and vicarious. And beloved, he suffered with you and he suffered for you. And when we truly understand this, when we come to greater grips with this, it will surely break our hearts and bend our knees in thanksgiving and mortification of sin and driving towards holiness when we are reminded that Jesus is God's man as the fulfiller of God's purpose that he satisfied God's requirements he hit the mark he is the one man who never drifted if you're here last week that great warning of the dangerous the deadly danger of drift in verses 1 through 4 Jesus Christ is the one human being that never drifted one nanometer away from the central purpose and focus and command and will of God he is our savior and because he tasted infinite suffering watch this because he tasted infinite suffering and death on your behalf for 6 hours on the cross you don't have to taste infinite suffering and death for eternity. And we can ask the question, who am I? Who am I that the Lord would take on frail flesh and die? What am I that God remembers me? Who am I that the sovereign Lord of the universe would be concerned about and care about and visit with loving, tender care? Verse 10 He says, for it was fitting for him. It was fitting for him. Now, when when we think about that, everything God does is fitting. 
I mean, it, it, the very definition of fitting, of, of what's right and appropriate, what's good, by definition is what God does. But the author of Hebrews here singles out one of God's actions and explicitly tells us that it was fitting. He says, for it was fitting for him, uppercase him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Now, understand the him here is not God the Son. It's God the Father. It's God the Father. It's the Father who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life. He whom no man has seen or can see. He is the him. God is the first cause of everything. It was solely by the grace and good pleasure of God the Father, not by the violence of man and Satan, that drove and purposed Christ to go to the cross. It is God's will, beloved, that the Son, the risen perfect man, Jesus, will rule over a universe. And he will rule over a universe. We could ask the question, will this universe that the Son, the risen Son, Savior, is ruling over in his incarnation, will, will it be an empty universe? Because there's no one worthy to be in it? And the answer is no, a resounding no. There will be people. There will be Adopted sons and daughters, there will be believers in this universe. And it won't be a tiny huddle of the elect in little corner. It will be as the sand of the seashore and stars of the sky filled with a vast, innumerable company. That is the plan of God. That is for the purpose of God. And what's amazing is the author of Hebrews is remarkable. He is a great, deep, profound thinker, and he is a great pastor, and that's a very rare combination. Most great, profound thinkers will often retreat into the hallways of academia and seminaries. Many pastors, most pastors probably aren't great thinkers. I'm certainly not myself. But this author here brings those together. He, he's able to give us the most profound truths and their context and their application in a tremendous economy of words. And so what you see in verse 10 is it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory. In bringing many sons to glory. Beloved, that is a beautiful, beautiful phrase. There are many wonderful summary statements in Scripture and summary verses in Scripture containing the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, verses I think around 6 through 8, has a great encapsulation of the good news of the gospel. This little phrase right here in bringing many sons to glory may be the most concentrated, power-packed expression of the gospel. Bringing many sons to glory contains all the facets, all the tenets of the good news, even the bad news. It, it is bringing man out of his sin, his and her sin. It brings the, just, the election of God, the justification of the sinner, the sanctification of the sinner as a saint, and the future glorification of all of us in the world to come, all in this beautiful power phase, bringing many sons to glory. Beloved, all believing men and women will ultimately reach the goal God's purpose of Psalm 8 by being united in the Lord Jesus. And even right now, 
We know the Apostle Paul brought this out. Even right now, we are already seated with him in the heavenly places in an already aspect to it. Not yet fully realized as it will be in the future, but we are seated right now with him even in heaven. Now, the public display of the glory of God is what is at stake here. We see glory and honor regarding man in Verses 5 through 8, now the glory and honor of the man in verse 9 and 10. We will be part of the public display of the glory of God, both right here, right now, as God's will is being done on earth, here even as it's being done in heaven in the church, and most gloriously, gloriously, wonderfully, perfectly, completely in heaven forever and ever. And understand this, this whole dynamic of a messiah that suffers and dies he didn't do this for angels he didn't die for angels there's no redemption for the angels there's no redemption possible for angels either there's no need in the case of the holy angels the elect angels because they didn't fall or there's no hope for the demons but for you and for me the son died and he will bring us fully to glory for his glory for our eternal joy in revelation 20 verse 6 the apostle john writes in his vision of our reign with him he says blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years beloved that is the rule and the dignity that awaits us but back here at the end of verse 10 of Hebrews he says to perfect the author of their salvation so he tells us the father uh, the one for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Let me ask the question, how can you perfect the perfect? Does this mean the son? Does this mean Jesus Christ, the man, was imperfect? No, what he is saying here is that the perfect son became the perfect savior. The word perfect can mean mature or complete. The idea here is the untested sinlessness of the man became the tested sinlessness of the man Christ the unproven obedience of Jesus became the proven obedience and it is to perfect make complete the author and by the way the word author there that should be capitalized and this word translated as author here has a deep rich variegated meaning it describes one who goes before one who leads the way it could be translated as the pathfinder we could understand this as he is our leader, he is our pioneer, he is our trailblazer, he is our captain, he is our prince. And beloved, what the author is telling us here is in the infinite holiness and justice of God, the pathway of perfection which we as people will tread must first be trodden by the pathfinder. Beloved, the man Jesus blazed the trail of salvation. He led the way into heaven as our forerunner. And the application for us is, may we on this side of eternity, may we on this side of glory, be like him in his suffering so that we can be like him in glory. That is what the author would have us to say. That's what the Apostle Paul, after 
Paul's encapsulation of the gospel in Philippians 3, verses 6 through 8. In verse 10 of Philippians 3, Paul says, May I know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. That's the intent. That's God's call on you and on me. And we can think of the beautiful, rich hymn, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turned his face away as wounds mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. Bring many sons and daughters to glory. And beloved, if you want a almost final application, turn over a few pages to chapter 12, verse 2. See what the author will say to us there. The author of Hebrews said to his original audience, God says to you and me right here today, right now, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author, same word, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Beloved, dear friend, listen and learn. Listen to Jesus and learn. Look to Jesus and live. And when you look to him, you don't just see a man, you see the man, the man Christ, the representative man who will lead you into eternal glory and honor, into the eternal glory and honor of Psalm 8, which was God's original intent all the way back in the garden. Beloved, this is the Christian message. This is such a contradictory message to the message of the humanist. Uh, the man Bertrand Russell, he was a early 20th century British philosopher, mathematician, logician, and social critic. He was a massive skeptic, an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ. He was a member of the advisory council of the British humanists, and he was president of the Cardiff humanists. He wrote a book called A Free Man's Worship. I'm going to read an excerpt from there and just listen to the bleakness, the hopelessness, the dire, sad, utterly dark prescription and viewpoint he has of what awaits us. This is what Russell wrote. He said, quote, Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. Omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness, it remains only to cherish Ere yet the blow falls, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. Finally, to worship at the shrine that his own hands have built. End quote. Beloved, despair, gloom, no hope, no peace. But, in contrast, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he or she dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And what Jesus said at the end of that verse is, do you believe in me? 
friend, do you believe in him? What if God mercifully became one of us? Dear friend, are you part of this vast, innumerable company of many sons and daughters that Jesus will bring with himself to glory? Dear friend, dear beloved, this is the embodiment of the message of Jesus, not in a creed to be quoted, not in an establishment to be formed, but in a life to be lived for the glory of God, for the joy of self, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus offers a clean page. He offers a fresh start. He offers a new day when we understand the dignity and the glory as really intended by God. The Lord Jesus secures freedom from the chains that would bind you to a dark past, and he secures freedom from the fears that would haunt you in a Christless future. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the wonder and the beauty of your creation. And even as you would remind us from the writings of David, from the writings of Hebrews, how small and frail and feeble we are. Who are we, Lord God, that you would step out of eternity, be born as a baby, grow up as a boy, as a man, be tempted even as we are tempted And Lord, we are eternally grateful and eternally give you praise that though you were tempted as we are tempted, yet you were without sin. You hit the mark. You satisfy God's perfect requirements of holiness and justice. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, that in you we have this hope, we have this promise. And Lord God, for anyone here this morning watching or listening or even later that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, let them repent of their sin. Let them trust in you for their salvation. Adopt them into your family as a new creature where old things pass away and new things come so that they can right now have a taste of realizing this future purpose with an eternity in heaven in your presence awaiting. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. And one more time, all your adopted children say, Amen.